0: Back to the bins. Hey, everybody. Good, good evening, and welcome to Back to the Bins. We are on episode number ninety-six. I am Paul Spataro, and I'm joined by my two friends, Scott Gardner. Hey, and Bill Robinson.
1: Hello, hello. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Bill, Bill is new to our show, and uh, he's an emergency replacement for Mike Bailey, who will be back eventually. But until then, we got a, I think, a very adequate replacement in Bill.
1: I am the Baileytron Nine Thousand replacement <laughs> podcaster. Hello, people <laughs> of the internet webs.
2: <laughs> give us your, uh, give us your comic book origin story in a nutshell, Bill.
1: Well, nutshell. Okay, my. My earliest comics I can remember, uh, one of them being uh, an Iron Man comic, which eventually led to Avengers and big-time Marvel fan. But also, one of my other early comics was a, uh, um, a copy of House of Mystery with DC. Um, I cannot remember the issue, and I wish I still had it. Uh, it I, I just remember it just scared the bejesus out of me when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, now i've been a long time comic collector um been a fan of uh two true Fre- freaks and uh glad that you guys invited me on tonight appreciate it
2: <laughs> you say invite but in actuality it was more of a shanghai as i put it before we started the show it was more of a bag over the head hey stupid get in the car <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're, we're very glad to have you on the show yeah, to, to
0: to break it up into like Marvel, DC, because everybody seems to do that. But just out of curiosity, or have you, were you in your early comic collecting more of a Marvel guy or a DC guy?
1: Pretty much Marvel at at first. I mean, you know, as I got older, kind of spread out to independence and and and, and other stuff. But but main, mainly Marvel.
0: It seems like I, I'm the same way. I grew up mostly Marvel, and then eventually I branched into DC. And almost everybody I talk to seems to be the opposite, hmm. which always struck me as strange. Because in the at least when I started, Marvel was the company. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was listening to someone else's show this week, and I'm just going to throw this out to you guys because it's just one of my pet peeves. I was listening to a different show, and they were talking about an artist, and it's one an artist that comes under some critique from different people. Every you know, people seem to have strong feelings one way or the other. And that's fine because, as I've said to Scott so many times in the past, you know, it's fine to you know, you like this, I like that, you know, I don't think you can tell people what to like, Uh, but they were just basically blasting anybody who didn't like this guy, kind of with the you know, you don't know what you're talking about if you don't like this art, and it just really gets on my nerves a little bit. Like, I'm fine with the idea of I am I don't have the total technical expertise, and they could probably, you know, talk about things that I'm not privy to on that and show me things that I don't understand. But when it comes down to what I like and what I don't like, you know, how does somebody else
2: tell somebody what they should like? You know, it just kind of got me a little irritated. Well, it's particularly when it comes to art, you know, because art is probably the most subjective thing that there is, you know, because everybody has a different art aesthetic. You are talking about an artist, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that that's a difficult one,
0: and I didn't want to throw it into a debate about the particular artist or anything like that, or, or even necessarily these guys, because you know they, they have a show that I listen to and it's fine, uh, but I just I just feel like that's so such a bad way to look at it that you know I know more than you, so I could tell you what's good, right? I, you know, I I feel like I throw out what I like and what I don't like when we do this show, and if somebody disagrees with me enough. Then they're going to start just disregarding my opinion. But they, you know, they can't tell me my opinion is wrong. It's my opinion. You know, I could tell you I like Dark Knight as much as I like, and you know, as much as you don't like it, you know, we have to deal with that uh, disparity. That's a horrible
2: example. That's a horrible
0: example.
1: <laughs> I'm going to just sidestep that landmine.
0: <laughs> I throw that one in front of him every once in a while, just for the heck of it.
2: Now, let me make sure I understand this. Probably now, now they had there was a, a, an artist that they were talking about. That that is that is what like much dogged or something and and they no. were saying that you're crazy if you don't like him. Is that what I'm it, it's, gathering? It's
0: more or less that there. It's not so much that he's much. He is much dogged, but he's also much loved. It's it's kind of like you fall on one side or the other. Either you love him or you hate him, and I, that's fine. I happen to fall on the hate side. His name the doesn't argument.
2: doesn't rhyme with uh, Cack Jerby by any <laughs> by any, uh, <laughs> chance, does it?
0: Uh, no, no. And you happen to know you know that I I love cack jerby
2: <laughs> well I, I only throw that out there because i know that that is uh, that's one of those ones that that does come up a lot and Real even true. even that example i mean i will profess to to just not dig on the guy's art but even that example you know i mean i'll look at the guy and i can see what others see in him i may not personally be a fan of but I can't be a hater because it's not like there's not anything to it. You know what I mean? So, yeah, mm. I, 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 I think that that's unfair to just lay down the law like, you know, like him or you're nuts kind of thing. Because, I mean, everybody likes, you know, different things.
0: Yeah. And like I said, it was just something that, that as I was listening to it, 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 it kind of like bothered me for them to throw out, you know, if you don't like this, basically you don't know what you're talking about. And and that bothers me a little. I, I, I try never to bring that to this show.
2: I probably bring that to this show all the time, and I don't mean to. It's just probably how I come across sometimes. But uh, but no, I I got your back. I know. I know. I think I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, hey, real quick before we move on, uh, I I just wanted to to go back and uh, you know we had mentioned our buddy Mike. Um, Mike's not here. I, I hope this is all right with him to discuss. But as he's posted it on Facebook several times, I'm going to assume that means it's a, it's open uh, topic to talk about. But long story short, Mike's not here um, because his father in law um, is uh, is in the hospital, and uh, I'm not sure entirely what the situation is um, as far as you know uh, uh, the actual severity of, of you know his father in law's condition or anything like that. But long story short. You know, send your prayers, your, your your well wishes, your happy thoughts, your your white light, whatever to uh, to Mike's father in law that uh, he comes through with a speedy recovery and all because uh, you know how it is when uh, when family's not doing well. You know, it's a, it's a it's a trying time. So uh, our our thoughts are with Mike, and uh, hopefully we'll have him back uh, next time around. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Uh, plus I think it's his thirteenth uh, wedding anniversary too.
2: Uh, ah, okay, so he didn't tell me that. So, okay, and now, now we're getting to the root of the matter here.
0: <laughs> as long as we're
2: talking about Oops. Mike behind his back. Uh, I was
0: listening to him on Views. I don't know if you listened to this at all. Uh, recently, he, he put together a little thing. Basically, it's his pre-recording session with Andy Leyland. Uh, you know, he had already had it recording, and he kind of cut it together and made it into an episode. But uh, Rachel... interrupted while they were recording and i was so impressed i've been impressed all along every time mike talks about rachel i'm so impressed with how supportive they are of each other but she was so upset (laughs) you could hear in her voice she was so upset that she interrupted him while he was recording but i was just impressed by how much she cared about you know his podcasting i just thought it was a great one of the greatest things
2: I'll have to listen to that i mean i'm I'm a little bit behind on views i I hate to admit I'm glad Mike's not here to hear me say that but uh, I'm actually a little bit behind but I'd like to hear that because I uh, love my wife to death but yeah if she if she walked in with something in the middle of the recording and be like, it's just a stupid podcasting thing anyway adam <laughs>
0: <laughs> i I was coming down here to record tonight and my wife asked me how come you don't pay me <laughs> oh okay well uh I said as soon as Scott starts making money then we'll yeah. talk. <laughs> we'll
2: have to we'll have to discuss podcast economics at some point with you. <laughs> See there's this thing called zero cash flow it's kind of how it works. <laughs> um one last uh, bit of preamble here um I just want to put the call out to the listeners if you guys have ideas for show 100 which is actually fast approaching this is episode 96 you know, it's uh, it's a month away at this point for show one hundred. We uh, it's not that we don't have ideas. I just don't know that I've. I, I don't think we've hit on like the idea. At least I don't feel like I have. You know, like like you know, so, something that someone's thrown out where I've just gone like, ah, that's it. You know, that's definitely what we want to do. So, if anybody has ideas for show one hundred, uh, let me know. I've I've you know definitely been kicking some different ideas around and maybe I'll throw something up on the forum just with the different ideas that we've had but uh, I, I'd like to like to hear from the listeners what do you guys ha- uh, think but uh, you got to get on it because we only have just uh, just a little bit of time to uh, to work on that one
1: well what if you reviewed um, maybe um, issue 100s from different uh, like you could do Walking Dead 100 uh, for an indie or you know, pick a uh, Marvel and a DC issue one hundred from from a certain line. Just an idea.
2: I like that idea, but I know it's been done. It's my yeah. only reservation with that? You know, I, I you know, not that at this point there is so many podcasts out there, it's hard not to do something that someone somewhere has probably not already done before. But I try not to do it when I when I know for a fact that it's been done. But I do like that mm. idea, though. We could always do it and make make sure or you know, to the best of our ability it's ones that hadn't already been picked for episode you know, for issue one hundreds. Right. You're still
0: not good on me doing the one man show with a dramatic reading of books of my choice.
2: <laughs> you knock yourself out. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have a little bit of stuff in the uh, in the inbox. Do we wanna uh, knock out some emails real quick here? Sure thing. Let me where do I have
0: my emails? There we go.
2: I don't know who, who wants to go first here. Do you want to go first you want me to go first?
0: Uh, I'll go first. All right. First letter is from Tom Paneris, and it's addressed only to Scott, so I guess probably I shouldn't be reading it. <laughs> but it says, Scott, I'm finally catching up on Back to the Bins, and right now I'm in the middle of your discussion on back-to-school sales, or shall I say, Rant which had me laughing out loud. (laughs) School supplies have gotten completely out of hand. I was a kid in the 1980s, and I don't remember having to buy any cleaning supplies or other sundries. Sure, our teachers used to send out requests for tissues in the dead of winter, but it was a request for one box, not a Costco pack. Now I swear it's like making a car payment, and I only have a kid entering kindergarten. But for what it's worth, the requests for extra crap do seem to taper off once you hit high school, or at least when you get to my class. I think my supply list for 10th grade English is all of a notebook, a folder, pens, slash pencils, and a working flash drive. My school does not have a network space where students can save work. So you guys didn't piss off this teacher. In fact, I was thinking, hell yeah, throughout the whole thing. However, I'm the exception to the rule because I feel like I'm probably the only teacher who doesn't get a huge boner when they see school supplies go back on sale? <laughs> I continue to enjoy the show, even if I'm a couple of weeks
2: behind. Keep up the great work, best Tom. I loved this one; I really did. I, I was very glad that I didn't piss Tom, you know piss any teacher off in particular, but uh, but you know, I didn't piss Tom off about the whole thing. He got a kick out of it. So
0: my son's Thank going you. into tenth grade. I only wish my, he had Tom for English. <laughs> <laughs>
2: let's see here next up we got oh did you want to do this one or did you want me to do this nah, one you do this one i'll just interrupt at the appropriate time <laughs> right. this one is entitled i'm batman and it's from our good friend andrew Leyland of the hey kids comics podcast and this one starts dearest scott luke and mike all right let's interrupt you right there <laughs> i had a feeling
0: <laughs> what the heck is that all about andy I thought we were becoming friends, and yet, you're already trying to replace me, I guess, with Luke, Jack, and Eddie, or possibly Luke Skywalker, I don't know who else we're going for here, but the name is P-A-U-L, not (laughs) L-U-K-E, get it right, or perhaps you shouldn't be emailing into us anymore, I don't want to be harsh, but, sorry. Sorry.
2: I don't know. I, I'm thinking that yeah, it's I, I'm I'm going to cut him some slack. I'm thinking it's a it's a fairly easy mistake. You know, you're you're both you know names that were in the Bible, both names that were in the Beatles. You know, I, I I'm thinking it's an easy one to to make. So
0: I, here here I am sitting at saying you know Andy and I sent a couple of messages back and forth. We've been in touch with each other. I'm thinking I've made a new friend. We get along great. I guess not. I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, I can't wait for his next email now. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, what, what's he going to do for me? else?
2: Hmm?
1: There was a Luke in the Beatles. I
2: was hoping somebody was going to call me on that. <laughs> it like, I
1: what the? It was the fifth Beatles.
2: It was the fifth Beatles. I was really hoping one of you guys would catch that. Yeah, I, I totally I'd be surprised how totally much completely it. bogus shit that I throw out on the shows <laughs> so that people never seem to call me on. So I, it means that. They either believe it or they're just not listening intently enough, one of the two. So. Yeah, you got to go with that second one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks.
0: <laughs> I don't know which one makes me feel worse. Well, I mean, let's be serious. I, I just totally missed it. You said it. I know that there wasn't a Luke in the Beatles.
1: <laughs> well, apparently in Scott's universe there was. Yeah. <laughs>
2: So he continues, or rather the email starts with, Another excellent episode, gents. Again, abandoning the formula, but adopting another one so it's all good. The Superman talk was most interesting. I was nonplussed by the trailer to Man of Steel, but it was attached to a mediocre movie, Dark Knight Rises, so maybe it didn't jazz me. Whilst I have nowhere near the animosity at Chris Nolan's Dark Knight films that Scott does, well... Yeah, who does? (laughs) Who does, really, yeah. I felt this movie was the weakest of the three, containing so much signposting for the ending that it was pretty pretty easy to work out the final five minutes from about a third of the way through. The fight choreography was exceptionally weak and some of the plotting very haphazard. Still, Anne Hathaway may may be the best live-action Catwoman yet, and I quite liked Bane, finding his delivery uh, to be quite droll and humorous throughout the movie. Paul's criticism about the lack of a vocal shift whenever he spoke was a valid one, though. Sure, Luke didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> the Man on Steel trailer, as I said, failed to impress. It just looks a little bland, low key. Dare I say, dull? I have no doubt that Henry Cavill, is that how you pronounce it? Cavill? I think so. Henry Cavill can pull it off, uh, but remember, Superman Returns was visually beautiful, but failed to set the world alight. The cast looks, uh, all looks pretty cool, and we have over a year, and this is, as Mike pointed out, a teaser. So it's still possible this may be excellent. We'll see. Paul said that a filmmaker uh, has to have passion for the material, and lest we forget that both Bale and Nolan said their goal was the definitive live-action Batman, with Bale even crediting Chris Reeve as one of the reasons he took the part. Now their success is entirely up to the beholder, Uh, But they at least did have the goal in mind when they set out uh, in this series. See, I could go on an epic rant about how I think that that's completely BS. Um, I won't for the sake of brevity in this show. But uh, I I think that that's just PR talking there. I think that more more than likely... Someone somewhere behind the scenes just thought that that was a, a pretty good thing to say to, to quiet the fanboys. That That's my guess, anyway. That's, the Chris
0: Reeve line or the definitive live-action Batman line?
2: Um... I'll say the Chris Reeve. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt about the definitive live-action Batman because, well, of course that I'm prejudiced anyway because in my opinion we still haven't gotten that. You know, of all the Batman, what have we had like seven Batman films now. There's still really not, you know, that that definitive. That, but that's my opinions. But I was actually talking more about the Chris Reeve one. I think that that's just become one of those mantras that you hear just about any time. There's a, a, a comic book movie that's coming out that's attempting to make, you know, uh, uh, take a bigger character, you know, like your Batman, your Spider-Man, your Captain America, that sort of thing, and and do it uh, honestly or, you know, sincerely. I, I think that that's just become one of those standard lines that people say, you know, well, you know, we're, we're you know wanting to, to do the Chris Reeve thing with it, so whether they meant it or not, I'd... I don't know, but <laughs> I don't think you could get a performance that was further from Chris Reeve um, than Bale's Bruce Wayne and Batman. But again, my opinion. Anyway, <clears throat> he continues onto the issues. Paul's choice was again the dog's bollocks, and I have to under—I have to admit, I don't understand that. You know, I, I know was,
0: that. I, I, I was going to interrupt to ask you what, if any, either of you know exactly how that translates to American.
2: Uh, the cat's meow, I guess. Dogs and bollocks. Uh, it sounds like
0: dog nuts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what I'd say. It's,
2: yeah, I don't, yeah, it's one of those, what do they call it, a colloquial, colloquialism? I'm not sure how, how that, I'm not we'll sure just, the origin of that, but I. yeah. That's will op- just op-
0: credit it as an Andyism. <laughs>
2: an andy-ist. uh All of the O'Neill Adams, uh, Rasha Ghoul stories are fantastic, and he did a good job conveying its awesomeness. Mike's choice to kill a a legend is a fave due to its appearance in one of those UK annuals I keep banging on about, the 1984 edition, I believe, and its readability is undiminished to this day. Scott picked one I hadn't read, uh, but I looked up the Digest reprint on eBay to find that they wanted 15 pounds for it. God, these things are expensive over here. And just as a side note... I tried to win that on eBay. It was listed on eBay for, I think it was 99 cents with like two bucks shipping or something. I already own it, but I was trying to win it and I was going to send it to Andy and I got outbid at the last minute. And I was really pissed at both whoever outbid me, but also at myself because I think I had tagged that one up on eBay earlier. So for all I know, it might be one of my Facebook friends saw it and outbid me for it. I'm not sure. So I, I, you know, But I hadn't really thought about that until I read this email that, hey, you know, I could, I could do him a good gesture and get that and send it to him. And, you know, it was one of those, like, last second of the auction outbids just to piss me off. But anyway, he wraps up by saying, however, the main reason for this overlong missive, my daughter Anya, laughed all the way through your reenactment of the Hostess Fruit Pies ad. I mean, literally, tears of laughter. The scoring uh, was good here as well. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So for that alone, this episode gets two thumbs up, one from me and one from Anya. Take care, fellas. Your pal, Andy. All right. Anya has just passed up Andy on my friend list. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I hardly ever do any sort of editing whatsoever on Back to the Bins short of, you know, adding on a, an opener and a closer. But uh, I did throw a little bit of extra scoring into that Host's Fruit Pie one just to, to just to try to make it a little more comedic. And uh, I, it, it worked, it, it I heard I it, it, it worked really well, actually. <laughs> now, uh, I, while,
0: while you were finishing with the letter, I went to the phrase finder. Oh, I and did I too. Up
1: dogs, bollocks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you got the same page as me?
1: Uh, where am I at? I'm on phrases.org.uk. Okay, mine is the
0: phrase finder. I'll give you my definition and explanation, and then if you want to take any further, go ahead. It says, meaning, excellent, the absolute apex. In other contexts, the word bollocks, meaning tes- testicles, so we weren't far off there, <laughs> has a negative connotation. The reason why the dog's bollocks are considered to be the top of the tree, or the reasons why, aren't clear. It may be linked to an associated phrase, stands out like a dog's balls. (laughs) (laughs) I can find no evidence to indicate that phrase as being earlier than the dog's bollocks. Dogs do enjoy licking their genitals, of course, but again, there's no evidence that links the coining of the phrase to that. All right, so much for my explanation.
1: (laughs) Uh, That's pretty much what I got. Then it says, origin, the word bollocks, meaning testicles, has been part of the language since the 18th century, but did not become used to mean nonsense until the earliest 20th century. The dog bollocks seems to have originated in Britain in the first half of the 20th century. And that's about all I got on that. Maybe Andy can help us on this.
0: (laughs) Or perhaps you'd like to send it to Luke. (laughs)
2: Well that'll do it for this episode of the Dogs Bollocks Podcast Um,
1: You've been listening to Bollocks Talk
0: (laughs) You know I don't know if anybody's going to enjoy listening to this But I'm enjoying doing it
2: (laughs) I'm worried about Anya listening to it now Oh good lord Our own dad brought it up Well yeah there you go we'll blame him
0: (laughs) All right. Before we get on to uh, sillier stuff, we have one more letter from Jose A Rivera. Hey guys, I'm listening to episode 95, and I wanted to bring up some fun stuff you guys were talking about in the episode. First, yes, Michael, I grew up with the pronunciation from the Batman the animated animated series of Raish as opposed to Raz, and I've often heard Denny O'Neill say it pronounced both ways in two different interviews. So that's even more confusing. <laughs> When talking about Jim Stalin and Jim Aparo on Batman, what about Ten Nights of the Beast? It's one of my favorite Batman stories and a pretty good in- international thriller in its own right. Batman versus the KG beast is still one of the more brutal fights I've seen in a comic, but it's so well written and well drawn that I find myself going back to it every once in a while. Now, I'm not familiar with that particular story, so I may have to look that one up.
2: I've read it once, or at least once. My biggest memory on that, if I'm not mistaken, is I think all the covers on that were by uh, Mike Zeck. But as far as the actual story itself, I don't really remember it very well.
0: Well, I mean, if it's Stalin and an Aparo, it's probably worth giving it a shot. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, like we were talking about it, the later you get into it with Aparo, the more, you know, questionable the art becomes. Right. I, I'm personally, you know, my, my best time for Aparo is the 70s.
2: Yeah, definitely. Okay,
0: and then going on, Jose says, talking about G.I. Joe, hell yes. The 80s G.I. Joe was a huge part of my, my childhood, and I remember when the Devil's Due press comic came out. It was a pretty huge deal. Most people remember it coming out so close after 9-11, but I really remember it really kicking off the wave of 80s nostalgia we got, a, we got for a few years. The comic itself, yeah, that first issue isn't all that great, but Michael put it best. The series gets better. It's funny that this episode featured a lot of spy themes. A nice coincidence. No novel-length email this time. I just <laughs> wanted to say how much fun I'm having, I have listening to the show. You guys always strike a fine balance talking about things I love and informing me of comics and stories that wouldn't be in my wheelhouse. Sincerely, Jose A. Rivera.
2: Thank you for the email, Jose. Absolutely absolutely i always enjoy uh uh, jose's emails and i think that about wraps us up on email wait wait
1: wait i've i've got an email Uh uh-oh this is from best buy hi (laughs) william r robinson which i just noticed that they screwed up my middle initial because it's f
0: so just like just like the email about uh, from andy before
1: (laughs) so this is this is this is bullocks Just a quick note to say thank you for your recent purchase. We hope you love every second of your new technology. Just remember, we're here to make sure you're happy. Hugs and kisses, be- best buy. So, I just didn't want to feel left out. Are you happy? No, they screwed up my middle initial.
2: Ah, see, that's a, they failed.
1: Well, yeah, I'm happy with my purchase. I'm just mad that they messed up my name.
2: R, F, you know, they're both in the alphabet.
1: Hey, hey. A, <laughs> A.
2: <laughs> well as i said before it's guest prerogative normally the marvel comic does go first but we don't want to put undue pressure on you do you really want to go first
1: yeah let's go for it all right all right the comic that i t- uh chose yeah, at a moment's notice <laughs> literally
2: almost <moment. laughs>
1: Uh, is, uh, the Invincible Iron Man issue 150, the special double-sized issue, anniversary issue. And this has a lovely cover featuring Iron Man and Dr. Doom about to duke it out. Trapped in the, in the time-lost land of King Arthur, Iron Man battles Dr. Doom with a cover by John Romita Jr. and finishes by Bob Layton. Um... I, now I'm just going to do a kind of quick synopsis and then touch on a couple pages. Um, so story starts out with uh, looks like a really freaky Steve Ditko painting <laughs> with uh, Iron Man and Doctor Doom floating down, spiraling through different dimensions, and um, at uh, at their journey's end, uh, they. They both come to, they're ready to start fighting again, and they turn and look, and they see Camelot in the distance. Now, here you can cue all your Monty Python jokes that you want. Camelot, Camelot.
0: <laughs> it's just a model. <laughs> a- uh, you, you know, you got to give me a second.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a silly place. Let's not go there. So, the title of the book is uh, Nightmare, and it's... Uh, uh, plot and writing is by david Cellini. i hope i got that right pencil art john ramada jr bob layton is plot and finishes and i have to say i i was it has been a long time since i really i thought bob layton did all the art in this and when i realized it was john ramada jr i i was surprised because going back to what you guys were talking about earlier about artists how you know people could say you know can have one opinion about an artist and they can't do anything wrong i mean i i've john ramada jr art is sometimes hot and cold for me sometimes i think Mm -hmm. it's really great and other times i'm like what is that you you know did he just blow this out in like you know like an hour or something i mean this is just really and and i I was surprised that this was his his art but you know you can kind of see it underneath the bob layton uh inking uh, then we have letters by Joe Rosen, um, colors by Bob Sharon, editor is Jim Scowrup, I believe I said that right, and editor-in-chief is Jim Shooter. So, we find Dr. Doom and Tony Stark, aka Iron Man, with their butts in Camelot, and the uh, as they're standing there talking about where they are and how they got there, uh, Doom has figured out that one of his henchmen uh, had uh, basically threw the controls on his time machine and dumped, their, dumped them back, back in the past. Um, so while they're talking, um, uh, a group of knights comes up, and uh, one of them makes the mistake of uh, touching Dr. Doom – Which is usually not something you want to do. And uh, Dr. Doom is kind enough to introduce him to alternating current through his lance. Which was quite a shocking surprise for him. And uh, meanwhile, through all this, uh, Doom keeps calling uh, Tony Stark lackey. Uh, Maybe Andy can give us uh, the definition of lackey later on on another show. Um, And they are taken to King Arthur's court. Uh, I guess you could queue up the. Uh, we could get uh, was it Richard Harris that did Camelot?
2: Yes, mm, yes. I think so. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, they're taken before King Arthur, and uh, Tony Stark is uh, very uh, um, respectful to uh, to King Arthur, um, and actually uses his uh, his armor to uh, levitate king arthur's throne um you know and everybody thinks oh it's magic it's sorcery it's black magic and one lady says uh erlik we must sacrifice an extra toad tonight so i guess it's not good to be a toad (laughs) in camelot but of course when it comes to doom doom just shoves his fist in king arthur's face and says look at my bling the royal seal of latveria (laughs) check this out and uh Arthur doesn't seem to be too impressed. I see. So he decides, uh, all right, I'll mull this over. You guys get out of my face. So, uh, um, later on that evening, Tony's looking out, uh, out it, out, out the window in the castle. He's thinking about what am I going to do here? I'm a man out of time. I've, I have no technology. I don't have anything to drink. Oh, wait. Oh. Um, and, uh, soon as he's thinking that door opens up behind him and it's a lovely maiden and of course then he says uh oh then again maybe i could stay here (laughs) meanwhile in dr doom's quarters uh doom is uh plotting and planning um how he's going to get one over on uh, on stark so he can be in in uh, arthur's good graces blah 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 and um a lovely maiden comes into uh, uh, his room, which he then begins to hypnotize <laughs> to tell him where Morgan Morgan Le Fay is. And as we'll learn, that's really one of the reasons that that's that's how he ended up that how they actually ended up being here because Doom had earlier been uh, scanning this period with his time machine and had wanted to come back this time, uh, which that'll be revealed why later on in the story. So basically. The girl tells him where uh, Morgan LeFay excuse me, Morgana Le Fay can be found, and uh, Doom pretty much drops her like a hot potato, and says, "Gotta go." Um, uh, unfortunately, he does this so quickly, and he—but but of course, he has the time to say this, but he couldn't actually do this. What he says is, "Ah, excellent." You have indeed been of service, young woman, It is a pity I have not the time to restore your mental cohesion before I, and he turns and blasts all the <laughs> wall. Leave. Really? You couldn't have just snapped your fingers and brought her out of it? You know? So, as he's getting ready to fly out, um, uh, he zaps one of the guards, and uh, he has a handy-dandy uh, jetpack underneath his uh, cape, and takes off, heading towards Morgana Le Fay's castle uh next morning um stark is brought before king arthur and uh he says "Ah, oh, it seems my decision has been made for me um you know, you are indeed a true knight and uh he also uh mentioned something about the um the woman that uh, doom had um hypnotized and that she is uh not but a a uh she does not, but babble like a cradle-bound child. Now, unfortunately, I don't think this poor woman. I think this is the way she stays because <laughs> I don't think that ever gets resolved. So, I'm kind of like, wow, that's uh, that's kind of harsh, uh, you know. Uh, but but hey, you know, she's just gone. Um, so then, um. King Arthur tells uh, Stark about Morgan Le Fay and the battles he's had uh, with, with, you know, how she's tried to slay him. And the battles with uh, Merlin throughout, uh, in the past, how she's trapped in her castle. Um, And then uh, they realize that's where Doom is gone. And um, so Iron Man decides to be King Arthur's champion. Next, we cut to the Valley of Wailing Mists. Um, or as I like to call it, my kid's room. Oh, wait. <laughs> uh, and uh, Dr. is riding a horse. Now, one, where did he get the horse? I guess he stole it. So now he's a horse thief. And Because uh, I guess that jetpack ran out. Not, not, not quite sure what happened there. Although we will see what happened to the jetpack in another couple pages. So he's riding up to the castle. And the drawbridge to this castle, the first thing I think... Is uh, the old Bugs Bunny cartoon when Bugs Bunny went back in time, and uh, and uh, Yosemite Sam was the black knight, and he's coming up to the uh, the castle gate, and uh, they raise the drawbridge, and uh, he's trying to get the dragon. He's, he's he's riding a dragon. It's like whoa whoa dragon like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when he when he finally stops he stops. Asimony Sam bounces across the back of the dragon and falls into the moat. But anyway, that's, that's a tangent. Don't mind me. Uh, so anyway, he comes up to the open drawbridge and uh, Doom's like, hmm, looks easy. Too easy. So he snaps the top off of the, uh, uh, the pommel on the saddle and chucks it onto the bridge and it passes the bridge and lands into uh, uh, a vat of acid. So he's like, uh, tricky, very tricky. So uh, uh, he decides, uh, okay, well, obviously I'm not going to walk, I'm not going to get in this way. So now, see, he still has his jet pack, and as he's taking off, flying with the jet pack, you see the horse next to him, and the horse whinnies like it's scared. So I think what happens, we don't see what happens. Horse. I think he takes off the jetpack, and the horse gets scared and runs right across the bridge. <laughs> 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 we don't see that, but that—that's just—that's just what I think would happen. So he flies up to the castle, goes in, and and uh, I definitely remember this comic as a young lad because I remember, hot I thought what Faye was. I mean, any any woman that can pull off a uh, a uh, uh, a belly chain with a skull on it. She, she's got it going on in my book. But anyway. And plus she's got a like a, a, a raven or a crow on her shoulder. So anyway, Doom's telling her, uh, you, I've been seeking you because I've been trying to find a way to free my mother uh, from uh, – she's trapped in hell. And I'm trying to find a way to free her, which as anybody who's read about Dr. Doom knows that's been one of his – you know every each year on Midsummer's Eve he battles the demons of hell to free his mother and it's in, and each year he fails so you know and that's when we find out that's why the controls were set for uh, on the time machine for him to come back at this time um, so she strings him along and says sure you want something I want something I want Arthur dead you want your mother free okay we'll, we'll come to an agreement. I've got I happen to have a piece of uh, Excalibur and I could summon an army of dead anyone who is you know was slain in battle against Arthur blah 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 so doom basically becomes ash from uh army of darkness <laughs> leading uh, an army of the undead <laughs> against King Arthur um, so obviously this book was way ahead of its time <laughs> so Later on, we see Doom leading the Army of the Dead, um, and uh, Stark, uh, Iron Man, goes out to face him. Uh, you know, they face off, and then you've got the obligatory splash page um, with the, both of them fighting up in the air, which is it, it is good, a good page. You've got all the... You know the Ar- Arthur's army and the dead army and you know, limbs everywhere, arrows flying through the air, spears, maces, dogs, cats, mass hysteria. And uh, there's a nice shot of of, of uh, Doom and Iron Man up above the battle, uh, fighting each other. Um, Doom's firing like a, a green laser, and it's shooting off in a distance. I, this is a, I really like this like this page. Uh, next. All right, so they're really not getting anywhere because uh, Doom and Star- uh, Stark seem to be evenly matched. However, when you're fighting an Ar- uh, Arthur's army, <laughs> is doing so well because uh, obviously when you fight an army of the undead, there you were obviously at a at a disadvantage. Um, so. Stark basically uh, uh, cold cocks Doom and catches him by surprise and takes off. And uh, Doom, of course, you know, is, aha, pfft, fleeing. I'm so disappointed. Nevertheless, I shall let him go, which is always the you know where villains go wrong. So Stark off. Figures out that Doom got his power from Morgan, Morgana LaFay. He goes to the cap, and uh, she tries to beat him with. Uh, 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 some crystals that turn into uh, black light to hold them. He's able to break free of that. Uh, next, she sends her her pet crow out to them. And I got to say, this comic book is really rough on uh, rough on wildlife too. <laughs> because uh, Stark pulls out a, uh, a a tube of highly concentrated heat-absorbing freon. Notice I said freon. I believe that's what we have in our houses for our air conditioning, <laughs> right? He throws his capsule. Okay, fortunately, as the freon spatters and spreads to the to instantly freeze the attacking beast bird's body, thus tenuously those tenuous expectations are realized. Crash! So basically, he hits it with this uh, uh, little tiny tube. It freezes the bird in midair and it shatters into it thousands of pieces when it hits the ground. Oof!
0: Squab dinner for everyone.
1: Audubon Society's gonna have something to say to him, <laughs> and and uh, and then uh, this is a nice line. Okay, Morgana, here I come. ready or not. <laughs> says, I just hope I'm ready. And then, I would burn iron man. I would see you blacken and, and steam. I would see you rise. And so, Lady, if you're gonna curse me, do it to my face. Oh, you make me hate you. <laughs> She's going on (laughs) and on and on and on, and and then she just leaves. She says, you know what, when I return, you're all doomed, and you'll feel my vengeance return, but Arthur said you were trapped. And so, again, this is another dang thing, I'm not really sure where she goes, because apparently I thought she was supposed to be trapped in the castle. Now, granted, it's been a few years since I read this, and I had to do a quick uh, 30-minute review but (laughs) Uh, uh, maybe I'll do some research later so anyway uh, once she she disappears the army of the uh, undead falls now Doom realizes wait a minute if they're gone that means she's gone and now I can't get the information to save my mother so he takes off with a, a soul-rendering cry, that even Arthur is uh, is uh, you know here here's a longing in, in his voice because you know he's you know he realizes this, you know he's lost another chance to save his mother, um. So he's uh, flying back. Cat yeah, breaks into the wall, then uh, Doom and Iron Man are standing there, and basically. Doom basically says, "All right, we're stuck here. We're not going to get out of here fighting each other. So we're going to have to trust each other." And (laughs) Tony Stark's like, "You just sort of kill me. How can I trust you? You're Doom, for God's sakes!" Of course, he doesn't say that, but then he says, "Because you have heard." Oh boy! So we have have the big, um, much like the good to bad standoff between uh, Doom and Iron Man where they're face-to-face and uh, they both agree to shut down their systems. Ah! <laughs> and they both turn their systems off and the next we're treated to a montage of them cannibalizing their armor and here I picture we would have uh, so happy together playing in the back. <laughs> He's working with no. <laughs> to get back to my time, so eh, my singing's not that good. Sorry. So finally, they uh, they build a machine, hock together from both their armors, and as doing it, you know, of course, I, I guess. Uh, well, obviously, at this time, no, nobody knows that. Uh, that Tony Stark is Iron Man, and uh, Doom is thinking, you know, if if Stark's underlings are as clever, are, are are this clever, he himself must be a genius. And then, you know, Tony Stark's thinking the same thing. Outside of Reed Richards, I've never known anyone with such an initiative grasp of electronics or such wonderful fashion sense. But anyway, all right. So they decide that if they do make it back back in time, they're going to give each other a twenty four hour Truce before they go after each other again. So, oh, and thing I've only know of two comic books that I can think of off the top of my head, and the other one is a new Teen Titans comic that references in it the actual year that the comic was in, because this comic was published in I believe September of 1981, um, and early on in the book stark actually says to doom we need to get back to 1981 so that that makes this comic you know right there obviously right Uh, and the last page in the epilogue it says tuesday 1981 (laughs) and there's a you know big flash boom both guys are back the machine is melted in in between them and you know they both stand there and say you know okay you know we meet again and um that pretty much is my synopsis for the issue i i hope you enjoyed it (laughs) i did (laughs) um back and uh look at some of the ads real quick um you know we have the uh, you know I always wanted to do these when I was a kid the the prizes or cash ones you know you sell so many things sell only ten items and you can get the uh, the seven by thirty five field glasses <laughs> that's model plane but never did and uh, let's see of course uh, where you could buy the uh, you could buy the Roman legion guys. 132 fighting soldiers uh, but probably the best one and I know the one that everyone's waiting for is the uh, the hostess Twinkie ad
2: uh oh dun 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 which is where's the end of the book <laughs>
0: would you rather discuss the book
2: first or do the ad first oh you mentioned the ad now we gotta now we gotta do the ad
1: okay I, I guess we could do the ad
2: hostess twinkies the human torch in hot tempered triumph Wait, balls of fire those
0: thugs are stealing all the money that the tv telethon raised for the town orphanage
1: balls we're in a hot spot is the human torch yeah big deal
2: we'll fight fire with me yeah, fire <laughs> turn on the hoses you mugs That'll cool you down, Mister Hot
1: Stuff. Yeah, and then you give us enough time to take the and Twinkies cakes for our getaway. they have stolen our favorite snack, Twinkie cakes. You know,
2: Torch, golden, delicious sponge cake outside and creamed filling inside.
0: Stealing Twinkies cakes from kids makes my blood boil.
2: Flame on. Yeah, nobody can hold a torch to that guy. Yeah, Or to Twinkie's cakes. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkie's cakes. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: now, I have to back you up on that because I read this as you were doing it. It, it never says you mugs.
2: <laughs> sure it does. It doesn't my A little, little creative license there. <laughs> Just a little bit, come on. <laughs> well, I don't really have notes or anything on this uh, on this issue. I have definitely read this one before. Um, I really like this story quite a bit. Uh, I like the uh, the what if story that spun out of this, uh, where uh, what if Iron Man? I forget. It's basically it, what if Iron Man never got back home, but I can't remember what the exact story was titled. Something like what if Iron Man became a knight of the Round Table or something like that. But it was I remember that being a really good story, but. Uh,
1: tricks him, and uh, at the last second, stiffs him, and he's stuck there.
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah. I forgot how how the dynamics worked. Probably my biggest note for this one, I really love this story, and it it pains me to bring this up because I, I feel like it's one of those things, if you bring it up, then maybe the story doesn't work anymore. But this is the first Iron Man story I can remember reading where, you know, he wasn't strapped for power the entire time. You know, I mean, he's stranded in Camelot, for Christ's sakes. How is he refueling or or repowering his armor? Because wasn't this during a time where if he scratched his ass more than three times, then he had to recharge his transistors? Uh, I remember that being... One of the reasons I wasn't really hot on Iron Man as a kid because he was constantly crying about his stupid transistors needing to be recharged. Every time he'd like fire a repulsor blast or something, it seemed like he was out of juice again.
0: That was one of the more early tropes for Iron Man. I think as, as it progressed, they did that less and less. And I think uh-huh. okay. by the time this came around, they weren't doing it that much.
2: So yeah. I, I guess it comes down to how much total time is he spending here too because it feels like they're there for quite a long time. Yeah, And I guess...
1: Terrific. I'm
2: sorry. Go ahead, Bill.
1: Like two or, like, at least, I'd say, two days.
2: Oh, is that all it is? See, it just... it feel. I guess it feels longer to me. It feels like they're, they're actually there for quite a while. So I guess that's why I was thinking that... You know, because he, he does a lot of stuff in this story. I mean, there's a lot of flying, a lot of, you know, smashing stuff, and firing repulsor blasts, and fighting with Doom, and it just seems like you know in any other story you know if this was taking place in modern times it seems like this would be one of those stories where he'd be like geez i'm almost out of juice kind of thing but because he can't refuel then it never comes up or at least that's that's kind of how i see it but that's not to take anything away from an otherwise really fantastic story and uh i always like these two squaring off i know they do again in what is it like another like Fifty or a hundred issues after this, they square off again, don't they?
0: Yeah, it was a hundred issues later, in issue uh, two fifty, they did it again, and then they had a mini series as well, which was pretty recently. Oh. Ah, yeah.
2: that I have which, not read.
1: There's and- a here that saying black can't hit him with everything I got. No place in this world where I can get a massive electrical boost. I have to charge my armor through its solar cells, and that's too slow a process to risk, letting my reserve energy levels drop too far. So he is recharging through solar power.
2: Ah, okay. You know, I flipped to that just as you were reading it, too. Yep, absolutely. Okay, well, good. He He does address that then. I love the art in this. See, it's funny. Like you were saying about, uh, about uh, John Romito Jr., I don't know how you feel about him modern day. See, I look at his stuff modern day, and I can't stand it. I look at it and go, what happened to this guy? But I look back at this stuff from his earliest work, and I love it. And it's strange because it's usually the other way around with artists like this, where you look at a lot of their early stuff and go, eh, I can see potential greatness. Maybe he'll be good one day. It, so it's very very odd to see somebody where I think that their very best stuff was their very earliest stuff
0: um, I, got, I got two things about that is first I think when he first started I think he was trying more to fit the house style hmm and and I think that was at a time in the 80s when the house style was a little bit more demanded of them I think you know as time went on they they felt more comfortable with artists showing their own style Uh to a greater extent. I mean, even some of the early great artists obviously had their own styles that they showed. But this is clearly you know, more in the house style. But also, I think, if you look at the art, it, it, it's very, very similar to Bob Layton's solo work, like on Hercules. Oh, yes. So I, I think he kind of imposed his own style over J. J.R. Jr. Uh, now, with with him, with, with Ramita Jr., I... I, you know, I'm, it's, I hate to always use the term "hit and miss," but uh, with his more recent stuff, it seems like sometimes it's rushed. Yes, uh, you know, he's trying to meet deadlines and he's just like pumping it out quickly. And I think, uh, if if I remember right, in an interview that I read with him, he kind of admits to that—that that, you know, sometimes he had to, uh, you know, lower his own standards just to get it out on time. Uh, but when he has time and when he really puts it together, I think he he has a dynamic style that. Does play well. Uh, it's just when he rushes it, it, it loses that detail, and that takes away from it.
1: Yeah, uh, when he did the, uh, I believe it was the Eternal series a few years ago, mm-hmm. it didn't seem to be some of his best. It just looked just not completely finished. And then, uh, um, I I think I one of the earliest. Things where you see his style change was was that when he was doing the x-men back in like the issue what was it like the 180s yeah
0: I think it was a little later than that. in the 180s wasn't it still uh, Paul Smith
1: uh, Paul Smith yeah that was like the one six maybe I
2: I know the general era you're talking about you know when when he came on to x-men yeah you know, that's that's I'm not sure the issue numbers but I I, I remember thinking that that's where his art style changed to more or less what he's doing today. Just that very loosey-goosey kind of sketchy art style. Um, it's kind of scratchy, is how I always describe it. I'm just, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that stuff. Um, to me, it looked a little bit too much like, like he was uh, a little too enamored of uh, of uh, Frank Miller or something. I, I don't know. So something changed in his art style. Uh, to where I just, uh, for the most part, you know, not all of it, but for the most part, I I just don't dig on it, whereas this early stuff of his I really, really like. But, again, you know, I'm perfectly willing to admit that a lot of what I see in here is Bob Layton. He I am a huge fan of. And I do agree that I think Layton is shoring up the R a lot in uh, in this particular issue, and I think in this run in general
1: anyway. Yeah, Bob, is that one of... uh one of our recent free comic book days at my local comic store because they're they're, they're in a local mall and uh, Bob Layton was here. So he was selling his stuff and had, had a lot of, uh, you know, was doing the aut- autographs and sketches. It was pretty cool. He's a great guy.
2: I love this uh, time machine thing that they build at the very end. It actually looks like the both of them are, are having some sort of video game battle with, like, an old, like, <laughs> Nintendo Power Glove or something. It's actually pretty cool. It's a yeah. cool-looking Kirby machine.
1: And then you've got the strange uh, magic effect coming off of it. When yeah.
2: Freaky-looking alternate dimension thing opening up, yeah. It's a good story, though. I really do dig this one. Yeah, me too. I, I liked your comment
0: that the splash page looks like uh, something out of Steve Ditko. I especially like at the upper right corner there's like a globe or something that has a wide open screaming mouth on it. Right. <laughs> I think that's kind of cool. If you, if you look to, let's see, two, three, four, five. Well, instead of counting it down, the page where Doom is sitting by himself plotting when the woman comes in, the second panel on that page, I love the way the coloring and the Shadows create mm-hmm. that metallic look on Doom's face. Mm-hmm. I, I think that really, you know, really they did well with just you know gray and white.
1: That's a great panel.
2: Yeah, Doom just sitting there thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that's a really really good panel.
1: And then down lower there, when she's reflected in his eyes, and you can see the veins in his eyes.
2: Yeah, that's mm-hmm. cool
0: too. Some real good, I mean, real good detail work in this one. And uh, while you were talking, I looked up a lackey, footman, servant, someone who does menial tasks or runs errands for errands for another, a servile follower, toady. I think toady is probably what Doom was going for. <laughs>
2: Iron, Man Ma- Iron Man's mask has a little bit of the uh, classic gray alien thing going on throughout this issue, though I'm noticing in some of the uh, some of the panels. Not that that's a bad thing, but it, it does. That one on the... Ah, damn it, the friggin' pages are not numbered. Yeah, that page where he's talking to King Arthur after after Doom uh, you know, splits town there.
1: Oh, yeah, when he's got that weird angle where his face is down. And
2: yeah, he does. He looks like angry alien face. <laughs> but I really like that, though. How does Doom not set either his ass or his cape on fire when he uses his rocket?
1: Well, when he leaves the... Uh the first time he uses it, when he leaves King Arthur's, he actually whips his ground Right. He doesn't. But the second time, when he after he scares the horse and the horse falls into the acid, um, <laughs> yeah, his, his cape set on fire. <laughs> yeah. Because, one, where is a horse going to – when has this horse ever encountered a rocket before? Right. Gone.
2: Well, that panel of doom coming in the window of Lafay's little sanctuary there is just oh my god! The detail in this is just crazy. That is a beautiful panel.
1: That look, that reminds me of like a George Perez one. Perez,
2: yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, I was. I was thinking uh,
0: George Perez in uh, what's the uh, the Hulk story with the maestro?
2: Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Um. Um. Ah, future imperfect. For, future imperfect. That's it. Yeah. When,
0: just, when they come yeah. into his room and he's got all the collectibles from the yeah. dead
2: heroes. That's that's what this reminded me of. Yeah. yeah, it's one of those type of things where you can just stand there and just pour over it for hours and and not pick up every detail that's in it because it's just crazily detailed. That's really nice though.
1: I guess they're going to compare uh, ring bling.
2: <laughs> <laughs> She's got a lot.
0: <laughs> now I had a question. Thingy fingernails though. Oh, yeah.
2: Well, she's, she's got a weird-looking face. It's like she's really cute from the neck down, but from the neck up, she's like a man or something. It's Yeah, she's not attractive. It's a man, baby. She's a man, baby. Now, did you, either of you guys ever read the story? Now, I, I'm, if I remember what I've heard of it correctly, Doom eventually did free his mother, right?
1: Yes, uh, that was wasn't it? Doesn't he make skits out of his uh, girlfriend and he imbues his armor and makes it magical?
2: Oh, I don't know. The one I was thinking of, see, I, I, I often think maybe I'm confusing my graphic novels. I haven't ac- actually read either of them, but I thought that there was a graphic novel where he recruited... It was either the Avengers or Doctor Strange or both to go to hell to, to like, save his mother. But I haven't actually read either of those, and I was wondering which one is the one that he actually pulls it off, if he actually pulls it off, and, and is it any good? I've never read it. Oh, because there's the one with the Avengers that's called, like, Emperor Doom or something. Maybe that one doesn't have anything to do with the subplot about his mother. I thought it did, but I'm not sure. But I think the one with Doctor Strange is the one where he and Strange actually go into hell to get his mother.
1: I believe you're right.
2: Yeah, but I've again, I've never actually read it. I'm just wondering if it... Because it it's kind of pricey on eBay, but I'd like to have a copy because I'd like to know how that story resolves, if that is... The resolution of the of the story. I've just never. I've never read it. I've never really heard one way or the other whether it's any good. I think Stern wrote it, and I mean you you can hardly ever go wrong with Roger Stern, so I I would imagine it's well written at the very least.
1: Let me take a look here. Uh, while we're talking, I think I got it.
0: Uh, see if I, it. I. I haven't read that particular story, but I do seem to remember hearing something about it. Yeah, I seem to remember something where like he he ends up creating somebody else's
2: soul for his mother's. Yeah, something like that. I think you're right. Yeah, I would like to read
1: that. Now I am familiar with the Emperor Doom one. That's uh, where he basically uses the Purple Man. Do you know who the Purple Man is? Oh yeah, I love the Purple Man. Yeah, he uses the Purple Man and he takes over the entire world. Oh, using cool. the Purple Man's powers. However, Wonder Man was in like a uh, experiment for for a month. And wasn't affected by it, and since he's like made of whatever ionic radiation, um, he's not. And it's bored with it because he had challenge now because everybody just bowed, bow, Oh wait, sorry, that was. <laughs> um, yeah. Hey, uh, but that. Those, and if I come across. Maybe I'll bring them over, um, and you can borrow them if you want. Sweet. Yeah, I would. I'd like to read those. Yeah. Well, I was uh, just, you know, uh, honored to be asked to come on.
0: Well, so far, it's. It, I think it's a good fit. It's good. Absolutely.
1: You. I. I felt nervous doing the synopsis. I wish I had more time to go through it because I'm using you guys and 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 Michael Bailey as my benchmark. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm winging it on a half an hour. I reread the comic book like three times. Okay, all right, this is uh, uh, all right. Maybe I'll say this. Maybe I'll say that. Okay, uh, and then when I started to do it, I completely forgot some of the things I was going to say. But anyway, I know it's it's. Who's listening anyway? Right.
0: That's that's the beauty of it. I'm not sure if anyone is. <laughs>
2: I'm just glad that I have it on tape that you say that, that, that you're using me as your benchmark. I want to play for that that for my <laughs> wife later and scare the hell out of her with it. she would be like, oh, good Lord. <laughs> All right, so why don't, why don't we jump into the DC
0: book? All right. Which, uh, you know, Kay, I, th- I think this has gone on long enough. All is forgiven with Andy. Uh, the whole Luke, Jack, and Eddie thing is forgotten. And my book is actually inspired by his letter last week where he suggested Brother Power the Geek as one of our possible theme shows. And that intrigued me, and I pulled out Brother Power the Geek number 1, and that's my book for this week. It's dated October of 1968. It has a 12-cent cover price. The cover, which I actually think is pretty cool, says a thing that lives and fights for its soul. It shows a figure that appears to be staggering along in an alleyway, and he's in the headlights of a motorcycle, and there are at least three menacing-appearing motorcyclists coming up from behind and headed right for him. Another word bubble indicates, here is the real-life scene of dangers in hippyland, And <laughs> the cover is actually a reprinting or a recreation of a panel directly from the book itself, which is kind of interesting. I don't remember ever seeing such an exact duplication of a panel as a cover. The credits in the book are sparse. It says, artist and writer, Joe Simon. And there's a little bit, I'll talk about that a little bit more after the uh, synopsis. We open with chapter one, A Thing is Born. The story opens with a group of hippies sitting around, many of which are holding flowers or playing guitars, but one is actually digging through a garbage pail. Uh, a motorcycle gang comes along across them and they decide to see if they can get a reaction out of the hippies. So to do so, They actually drive their bike into the crowd, hitting at least two of them. Then they physically attack the hippies and ride off, leaving them licking their wounds. We meet Brother Paul and Brother Nick, who are two of the hippies, who go back to their pad to clean up their wounds. The pad is an abandoned tailor shop that they've taken over. One of them washes his clothes in a sink and then puts them onto a tailor dummy that had been left in the shop. And he puts that dummy over a a radiator to let it dry. And when he does that, he actually knocks a can of machine oil, and the dummy apparently has blood stains on it and oil on it. uh, And the dummy slips behind the radiator where it absorbs dust, rain, and oil, which begs the question, why wash those clothes in the first place, if that's what you're going to do with them? The dummy remains there through the summer and the winter which again says, why bother washing the clothes? You're going to (laughs) just leave it there. Uh, Eventually, lightning is attracted to the radiator, and it strikes the dummy, which then gets up and starts walking. The two hippies see it, and at that exact moment, the motorcyclists from months earlier crash through the front window and head head towards the dummy, who actually lifts one of the motorcycles into the air. They attempt to beat on the dummy and realize they can't hurt it because it has no bones. It picks up the motorcycle and swings it into the bikers and then throws the motorcycle out of the window after them. And Brother Nick says, that's power, Brother Power. And they wonder if it's good or evil or just a geek. <laughs> yeah, It only gets more trippy as it goes on. We, we then join them in the neighborhood where Brother Power is hanging out with the hippies, but for some reason not drawing attention from the people around but he becomes a little bit disenchanted with their lazy ways and decides he wants to soar like a bird, and that ends Chapter 1. We open Chapter 2, which is The mind blowers of PS23, and I don't really understand that title. Uh, We rejoin our hippie friends who decide to find out if they can teach Brother Power how to speak. Within a period of months, he's talking like a hippie, and then they put him into school, but he's ashamed to be in class with little kids, So he folds himself into a backpack and asks the hippies to carry him into the class so that he won't feel different from the other students. I'm not sure how that makes you feel the same as the other students, but that's what he comes up with. He learns very quickly and even starts to understand the science that brought him to life, which really kind of puts him a step ahead of me. Uh, In the next scene, Brother Power is walking with the two hippies and they see a parade for the psychedelic circus and come across a broken float. The man in charge of the float has the tallest top hat I've ever seen, and Brother Power attempts to help them when some men drop a chain onto Brother Power and drag him away while a couple of thugs beat up the hippies again. The uh, hippies think that the motorcycle gang abducted him, and they go back to their fellow hippies, who are basically ready to give up because they can't fight. Now, I'm a little unclear as to exactly what happens next, but it seems like there's some sort of comic book hero parade that the hippies go to. And they see the motorcycles there, motorcyclists there, and they get into another brawl with them and get their asses kicked again. The gang leader tells him he had nothing to do with the abduction and that you know, basically they're afraid of Brother Power. They wouldn't have touched him. So then, as a testament to the laziness of the hippies, it actually takes them several days to find out where the psychedelic circus is located. And then they go there, but they don't have money to go in, so they have to agree basically to barter and work so that they can go into the uh, exhibits. In any event, they make their way to a freak show exhibit where they find Brother Power chained up in the rain. And there's a stereotypically dressed strong man with a club there, and they start to fight with him. But one of them trips over a spotlight, which falls into a puddle, and the electricity charges Brother Power up again. He breaks out of the chains and beats up the strongman, and they all escape. They go back to the tailor shop where a hippie named Cindy helps to stitch up the rips in Brother Power and gives him a flower emblem for his chest. In a very weird twist, considering he's a rag doll, he's clearly smitten with her and combs his hair and starts to look basically like a blonde, raggedy Andy, complete with blushing cheeks. He decides to (laughs) become someone a girl could be proud of and starts to campaign to run for Congress. While he's campaigning, the top hat dude from the uh, circus goes to the police and complains that he ruined the circus. The police go after Brother Power, and he runs because no one ever believes hippies. As he's in hiding, we get a chance to meet the motorcycle gang, Well, we get a chance meeting with a motorcycle gang, excuse me, in a splash page, which is the same as the cover from the issue. A news cameraman sees the confrontation and films Brother Power taking a bike from one of the gang and riding off, which is reported on the Huntley and Brinkley Report, which is a real-life news show that ran on NBC from 1956 until 1970. The news report makes him appear more guilty than ever, and the police give chase to the Golden Gate Bridge, where they basically have him cut off on both sides. He eventually decides to go through one of the retaining walls and jumps off the bridge into the water where he sinks. And then we see Brother Paul, Brother Nick, and Cindy, who are standing there crying and talking about how he was a man who could have been a congressman, a governor, or even the president. And <laughs> the final the final note says to find out what happened to him, to tune in to the next swinging issue. And that's how Brother Power the Geek number one ends. And it's, I would say it's most definitely the weirdest issue that I've done since I've been on this show, and one of the weirdest issues I've ever read, period. Now, <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I have heard almost like the legend of Brother Power the Geek, but had no experience ever actually reading any of it until this. And then, like I said, with, with Andy's email when he mentioned it, I said you know, to myself, what the hell, let me pull this out. And this is just a weird, weird story.
2: I'm uh, I'm looking at uh, the Wikipedia entry on this right now. And granted, uh, I feel like I always say this every time I mention Wikipedia in a podcast. But I take Wikipedia with a big old grain of salt. But uh, frankly, I'm amazed that... There is a legend uh, about this because the book only lasted two issues. I didn't even know that. I thought this was at least, you know, like a year or half a year or something. I mean, two issues, and then he didn't appear again for, what, until the 90s. It's like, how the hell does anybody even remember this character? What, what uh, I think actually fueled a lot of his
0: uh, resurgence, or at least for me, the thing that I first remember becoming aware of him is actually in one of the Fred Hembeck parodies that he came out with either in the late 70s or the early 80s. And I remember he was doing some sort of a a rift. I couldn't tell you which of his issues it was that he had come out with, but he was doing some sort of rift on Brother Voodoo, and they shifted from that to Brother Power the Geek. (laughs) And, And... that was the first time I ever saw anything with the character, but I remember seeing it then, and and it, it caught my attention, and I started wondering, okay, who is this? What's going on here? And I wouldn't be at all surprised if that's what caught somebody else's eye, and that's what made them actually revive the character to a very small extent in the 90s. Uh, what I found as far as other appearances were in Swamp Thing Annual Number 5, which I think you said you had read, right? So that
2: That's my only exposure to the character ever and what's weird is even when i read that story and i had to be let's see it doesn't give a what i'm looking at here doesn't give a year but it says uh in the 90s so i mean i was in my 20s and even then i knew who he was without ever having read either of these issues so i'm just i'm kind of mystified by that it's, i like you know, again, how how the hell did I know who this character was? I had absolutely zero exposure to him, yet somehow he had attained some sort of legendary status to where people know who he is without knowing him, <laughs> if that makes exactly. any sense. It's, it's so weird.
0: And it, there was also another appearance, apparently, in uh, the recent incarnation of the Brave and the Bold, number 29... And there was a Vertigo one-shot uh, by Rachel Pollack, who I'm not familiar with, and Mike Allred, who I am. Uh, and it was called Corruption of the Innocent or Homelands of the Dolls. And I think those are the only actual appearances of the character, but uh, my understanding is there are other like vague references to him in issues, but never an actual appearance. Uh, according to I don't know if it was the Wikipedia entrance or, uh, entry or somewhere else that I was looking. And they were saying Mort Weisinger, who I guess was the DC uh, editor at the time, mm-hmm. that he had real problems with the character due to the fact that it kind of showed the hippie culture as being sympathetic, and he didn't like that.
1: Them damn hippies.
2: It's, it's funny you say that because the character that I focused on the strongest in this issue was Hound Dog. I found myself actually rooting for him because he just kept coming in and busting up the, the hippies. <laughs> Every time they'd get settled somewhere, he'd come in just to be an asshole and rout everybody around again. I, I actually liked that quite a bit in this, because I'm not a, a fan of the hippie culture myself. So. <laughs> I, I, you know,
0: I, I really didn't imagine anyone finding Hound Dog to be the sympathetic character. Well,
2: I didn't so much sympathize with him as root for him, you know what I mean? In a in a, in a rude kind of way. Well, <laughs> it's definitely got a
0: like a uh, Frankenstein type feel to it in a, in a weird way. Though, because he's like kind of an, a misunderstood creation brought to life by electricity and then, you know, he's sensitive and all of that stuff. Uh, the artwork in this issue was peculiar. And Apparently, according to the Wikipedia entry, it was not drawn by Joe Simon, but an artist named Al Baer, who worked at Sick Magazine, mm-hmm. which was kind of a uh, Mad Magazine ripoff.
2: Mad rip-off, yeah. Mm.
0: And, and the art kind of has that look to it. it. It looks like the Mad Magazine movie satires. That's that's what I was thinking as I read it, and then later I found uh, I saw this entry where it said that Albert, who worked at SIC, actually did the uh, the artwork.
2: Hmm. You see, I'm not familiar enough with with Joe Simon's art to to have spotted that one way or the other. But what the, the only thing I had as far as it being Joe Simon is you know if Joe Simon is is credited as the creator on this then doesn't that make uh, Brother Voodoo and Captain America half-brothers just by default?
0: You mean Brother Power and Captain America? Or Brother
2: Voodoo. Yeah. What, did I, what the hell does that Brother Voodoo. Brother Voodoo, Brother Power, whatever the hell this guy's name is. <laughs> I guess they have, the, they have the same dad.
0: Yeah. Kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> now... Uh, like, I, I don't even know where else to go with the actual story in this, uh, but I did see two ads in the book that I found to be really uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. One was for a Lois Lane 80-page giant, which features uh, a compilation of Lois's screen- schemes and dreams to marry Superman. And uh, what I just found fascinating, and i, I got to look this one up, though, because it, it had several issues or several stories noted on the cover, including one where she makes a deal with the devil. So definitely seem worth reading. It's almost almost like the Spider Man One More Day thing, right? <laughs> and then there's an ad in there, uh, a half page ad: How to do strongman tricks, dot dot dot, without strength. <laughs> <laughs> Only is that like one dollar.
1: And, that and like you know a that book in half?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that it works because there are cartoon drawings of a guy in a speedo. Smashing rocks with his bare hands, lifting he's... a bench with five men on it with his knees and breaking a plank with his hands.
2: Oh is that with his knees he looks like he's doing it with his unit, which is quite the <laughs> quite the feat I must say <laughs> that would be a, Vi- a Viagra
0: ad and, uh, and they also give you a money back guarantee that it apparently works
2: so I, I thought that ad was really kind of kind of just weird that entire page is making me very uncomfortable. <laughs> Um, the ad that I, uh, I was focusing on here was, uh, on the, well, I'm looking at this as digitally. So it's the last page of my digital copy. It's a, a great classic late sixties Hot Wheels ad. And I love these old ads because, you know, as a child of the seventies, I got a lot of hand-me-down Hot Wheels stuff from my older uncles. And so these cars and just the track and the, and the layout and everything of the ads really takes me back to you know earliest childhood. I, I, but I love ads like this. Hot Wheels I had, was really I had that cool set. back. Yeah, I think I did too. Yeah, it was the classic. It was the one that had the it was like a screw type of thing that would attach to like a tabletop or something, and then it would come down, do a loop de loop and a little jump, and that was yeah, I love that stuff.
1: Uh, there's nothing like being hit with one of them Hot Wheels tracks.
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they were a great paddle. (laughs) Yeah, I know I got my ass whooped at least once with a Hot Wheels track. Thankfully, that's not an experience that I share. That's because you were a good kid. I was quite the good boy. So you got into the mob. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I am Italian.
1: (laughs) Well... What was the name of chapter 2 again? I, I don't have a copy of this chapter. So, 2 Did you was, say like PS23
0: or something? It said The Mind Blowers of PS23. I guess PS. Would that, is, no.
1: Would that be was, called School 23? Because then you say he went to school?
0: You know, I guess that's what it is. Because he did go to school and he basically had them bring him in a backpack to school, which is also <laughs> just weird. You know, it, it was. Like, like if, if, you, see, if you see if you see the art from the cover, he's depicted as this very dark character with hair covering his face and no facial features, and I thought that was cool because it almost had that Frankenstein type feel to it. Then, towards the end of the second chapter, when he meets Cindy and she, uh, she kind of makes him over and turns him into Raggedy Andy, it just kind of loses whatever effectiveness it had to
1: me at all. I think he was the precursor of the Chucky. <laughs>
2: Hey, this really is David Brinkley on this one page too. That's yeah. pretty cool. That I like. Now, see, there was something in the uh in the Wikipedia entry here that says uh Brother Power was last seen being shot into space on orders from Governor Ronald Reagan. Now this makes me want to go track that down just <laughs> to find out what the hell is that all about.
1: That's well, got to be interesting. He's just well, too I- dangerous to stay. <laughs> You gotta go, you gotta go. As as
0: weird as it was, I was compelled to go on and read issue two after I finished this one. And that doesn't happen in issue two, so I don't know when it exactly happened. Oh, wow.
1: Huh. Wait a minute, did you say governor, Ronald Reagan? Yeah. Oh, okay, alright. That, that Which would be, would be in the be right. late 60s,
0: yeah. early 70s. Yeah. yeah.
1: Wait a minute, why does a governor have the power to launch somebody in his face? <laughs> I... <laughs> Never mind. I'm going to stop well, maybe, <laughs>
2: ask, asking questions when maybe it comes it to brother
0: when, power, dude. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing it was when uh, Jimmy Carter was in office, maybe, and, and you had a Democrat, liberal writing it, and he needed to have a conservative Republican be the
2: bad guy. Be the bad guy. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: That makes <laughs> sense. So you can't go to the president. So you go to the go to the governor. Wow. Yikes. And you know, we said we weren't going to do a political podcast, so I'll just leave it at that.
2: No, but that that does make sense, though. I mean, because you know, the the establishment is clearly defined as as the bad guys in this. You know, anybody that's that's not the man, you know, lefty, liberal is is you know the good guy and all right, the bad guy rather, and yeah. So that, that does actually make a, a a perverted kind of sense.
0: And when this issue came out, Nixon would have been the president, so they could have very easily made him the bad guy if they wanted to, Mm. if it happened then. That's why I'm thinking it happened later.
2: I'm trying to remember if that Swamp Thing story was any good. I, I I literally don't remember a thing about it, but it seems to me that it wasn't a bad little story. I just I can't remember anything about it. it says here it was written by Neil Gaiman, and that kind of surprises me. I don't remember him doing any uh, any Swamp Thing stuff, but of course it was an annual, and those annuals could be kind of strange sometimes. So
0: I yeah I haven't read that story, but what I read about it said that basically he establishes Brother Power as. A an elemental being, Mm -hmm. similar to Swamp Thing himself, where like Swamp Thing, I guess is is part you know part of the earth. Right. Uh, The brother power is like an elemental being where he is connected
2: to all uh, facsimiles of human life, something along those lines. Yeah, that that, that's where the Swamp Thing thing started to kind of lose me a little bit. Is when because I liked. Moore's original take of you know he wasn't really a human that had become a plant that you know he was basically a plant that dreamt he was a man type of thing and then they went into the whole plant elemental i liked all that and then they started to get to me overboard with it because then all of a sudden well firestorm was a fire elemental and uh i forget They, they basically oh red tornado was like the air so basically they found all these like second-tier characters to suddenly start making them all the different elementals. And that's where I kind of went, all right, you're taking this just a little bit too far. And I think the ultimate culmination of that was Brother Power being the, uh, you know, the (laughs) ragdoll elemental or whatever the hell he is. And I thought, okay, that's kind of, you know, but at least it was a character that is, you know, off in the extreme left field. So, you know, you can either, you know, accept it or completely ignore it. And it doesn't matter really one way or the other, you know. Mm. But... Interesting. I always thought that he teamed up with Superman at some point, but I don't see that listed here anywhere. Maybe that's the Brave and the Bold issue. With Superman? Well,
0: why not? when they did the uh, the 2000s version of Brave and the Bold, <laughs> it wasn't necessarily Batman in each issue. It
2: was uh, any kind
0: of team-up that they came up with.
2: So. I'm thinking like way back when, though. You know what I mean? Like, like in something... I don't know, I'm not even sure what era maybe like like s- late 70s to mid 80s or something I I don't know it's just for some reason I had thought that he popped up somewhere with something to do with super like they teamed up or you know crossed paths or something but I'm like I say I'm not seeing that list but this is hardly a uh, definitive list of <laughs> brother geek appearances either so And
0: for what it's worth uh, Brave and the Bold 29 Batman and Brother Power of the geek
1: yeah, by J. Michael Straczynski. And Jesus <laughs> says, or says, I don't know how it's pronounced.
2: According to this, it says that uh, Joe Simon prefers not to discuss that particular. <laughs> and I can't imagine why.
0: Uh, I I got the impression that he his reluctance and this is just based on cr- probably the same similar things to what you're reading, but I got the impression that his reluctance was more based on the fact that they just squashed it so fast after it came out, right? That that it you know was just considered to be a failure, not because he was embarrassed of it so much uh, as I I got the feeling that he you know that he was like a little bit angry that it was, uh, about it. Yeah, I can see. Yeah.
2: That. I can see that. I mean it. You know, I I didn't unfortunately I didn't get to exactly read the whole thing. I started reading it and then kind of ran out of time before it was time to uh, to go live with the show. But from what I read of it, I mean, I was digging it, but I was definitely digging it in a oh my god, this is really you know wacky rather than taking it and and I think more than likely following the the intended you know <laughs> reaction I yeah. was you know that I, the, that the author intended me to have you know of you know. Yeah, know, stick it to the man or whatever the hell he's going for here. But, yeah, this is one bizarre read. But that it, said, it's fun in that aspect of just being like a what the hell am I reading kind of read, you know? It it, it left me with a feeling of like uh, almost like a, when Archie
0: Comics would have like a superhero story in it. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no attempt to even have comic book science to it. You know, just, just throwing, out, throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what would, you know where it goes right uh and 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 if you take it from that perspective i think like you said it's it's it you can't go as far as to say it's good but it's interesting and and it it does keep your attention to enough to
2: finish it it's not like you get halfway through and it's like oh forget so i gotta just throw it out well one thing i found that was really amusing here in this wikipedia article was that you know as am uh, we were talking and i'm flipping back and forth through the pages and through the issue i got to thinking you know i'm really surprised that somewhere along the line somebody didn't pull this character out to populate a team of freaks somewhere and actually it looks like somebody tried to because it said that he was among the heroes that were summoned by snapper Carr and the Blasters special which that's what the blasters were they were basically just a team of misfits but i as i recall i don't think they went beyond their special if i remember properly so somebody tried that idea evidently and it just didn't didn't fly but i could definitely see like uh You know, The Secret Six was a hell of a good book there for a while, and it had uh, uh, a character on there, the Ragdoll. And I could see there being, like, a team of, like, an opposite number, you know, like Hero Freaks or something, where Brother Power could be, you know, the opposite number, the Ragdoll or something like that. I I could see
1: something like that. Every time you say Ragdoll, I think of Aerosmith. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Get on a tangent. (laughs) Well, because yeah, we, we
0: don't we don't normally go on tangents. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. <No>. Oh.
2: <laughs> well, are we ready for the uh, for the last book for this go around? I think so. All right, so I've got the indie title this time around, and uh, I dug out a book from back in the uh, the wild and woolly days of nineteen ninety five. This is the Torch of Liberty Special by Dark Horse Comics. Written by uh, John Byrne, and mm. art in this one by uh, Byrne's one time stepson, Kieran Dwyer, who uh, also provides the cover that, to my eyes, is sneakily reminiscent of Byrne's uh, DC Comics On Sale Here promo poster uh, that he did from his time working on Superman. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that poster, but it's Byrne's Superman, you know, big and bulky smashing or you know, punching his fist through a uh, through a steel wall. And the cover to this is very similar to that. It has the Torch of Liberty, and he's punching through the cover of this book. But it's uh, it's very, very similar to that. And uh, really very little cover copy on it at all. It just says Torch of Liberty special, names the creators. And then there's a little uh, circle... Uh, down in the corner with a uh, girl's picture, and it just says, featuring Radio Girl.
1: That's a scary looking picture, too. Isn't it? Yeah. It's
2: kind of creepy looking. She's got a creepy smile. She's got like Joker smile or something. <laughs> so the story opens uh, with the torch and his young female partner, Radio Girl. Now, if you think of uh, Carrie Kelly from Dark Knight Returns with kind of like a 50s makeover, you kind of get the idea. You know, you get the picture of what she looks like here. And they're leaping and jumping and swinging over the rooftops of New York City. And they come to a skylight and they eavesdrop on a group of Reds when Radio Girls' fillings start playing a radio broadcast loud enough that it actually draws the attention of the bad guys. Now, I just had to stop and ask myself, is this seriously why this girl is called Radio Girl? Because... That's kind of stupid, I think. (laughs) So anyway, the jig is up. So Torch and Radio Girl, they drop through the skylight, and they proceed to beat the holy hell out of these spies or saboteurs or whatever these guys are supposed to be. And things are actually going pretty well for this uh, pseudo-Captain America and Bucky team until the Torch confronts one of the spies who's a pretty young girl. And she's just sitting there, seemingly minding her own business, just watching this fight. And she just casually pulls out a gun and shoots him at point-blank range. So the torch is down and uh, the fight is over. That woman's name is uh, Comrade Androva. And she keeps her weapon trained on Radio Girl. And she suddenly receives high praise from off-panel. And she turns around to see her boss speaking at her. And he is... Lennon's ghost, and it's it's actually Lennon,
0: uh...
2: and uh, he's a ghost, so it's it's actually pretty cool. Chapter two begins with uh, Lennon's ghost ordering the disposal of our heroes, and in Batman TV show style, the Reds go through this giant hassle of actually going out in the midst of a torrential downpour. They put the duo into an old water tower and they actually have one of their own men swim through nasty fetid muck down to the bottom of it and chain their feet at equal lengths to this old submerged pipe down in the bottom of the water tower so that the pair will drown at exactly the same time as the water level rises. Now, one of the henchmen actually even says, why don't we just ice them? And, you know, that's what I was thinking you know, to which they receive the standard, you know, well, you know, it's all about style and to do it with a modicum of finesse, you know, would be a, or without rather a modicum of finesse would be a front to everything I've dedicated to my, and it's just yada, yada, yada. And it's kind of, it's kind of silly. So of course the heroes break out. I mean, you don't need me to tell you that. And, uh, you know, for a guy who was just shot at about the closest range possible, and was bleeding like a stuck pig just a couple of pages ago. The Torch of Liberty doesn't really seem worse for the wear. And it was at this point that a book that had actually started out with a whole hell of a lot of promise kind of started to lose me. You know, we have a hero with potential for real greatness, I think, you know, the, the Torch of Liberty. We have a sidekick who's, you know, she's kind of annoying on the surface, but I was I was really hoping that we were going to get more of, of her backstory and find out, you know, what is she all about? Why is she called Radio Girl? Does she have some sort of unique gimmick or superpowers or just something beneath the surface of the character? And then we have this villain, you know, really cool as hell villain, Lennon's Ghost. I mean, he looks like uh, Vladimir Lenin. And he's a ghost. He has ghost like powers. He can become intangible or, or solid at will and all the, you know, he's the whole ghost stick. So you've you've got interesting characters, you've got a lot of potential. It just doesn't really feel like it goes anywhere. So, you know, instead of really developing the characters, instead we we basically get the opener to Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull because we get this there's this mysterious death ray at a, at a secret government installation that the Reds want to go steal. And the torch meets them there to stop them. And, you know, oh, by the way, you know, the design of the gun is faulty and it's going to explode like an A-bomb in an hour or so if, you know, the torch doesn't sign. It just it gets into this whole, like, off in left field, uh, again, you know, very much like Crystal Skull territory. Oh, well, the book eventually ends with uh, with the torch radio girl. You know, they barely escape the giant A bomb blast at the end, and the Reds seemingly are all blowed up real good. And that and the story just ends there. It, there's nothing else to it. It wasn't bad. I mean, I enjoyed it for what it was. But the problem with with it is that it feels a little rushed. It's very unfulfilling. I mean, this is a special. This isn't Torch of Liberty number fifty five. This is Torch of Liberty special. There's really nothing special about it. It's just, it's an adventure. And I was, I was let down by that. Typically, if it's a special, it should feel, you know, special. It should have some meat to it. And this just doesn't. It's just a one-off, quick little, um, hate to say it, meaningless adventure. Um Pretty sure I picked this one up in the cheapy bins. I'm hoping I did because if I bought this brand new, then I think I got screwed because it was originally $2.50, which, you know, it's not ridiculous. But frankly, I think it's more than the book is worth. But I'm pretty sure I got it out of some uh, back issue bin somewhere for probably a quarter or 50 cents. I honestly don't remember anymore. The art is the big thing with this. The art is gorgeous. It's a little dark, but I think that's the fault of either the inking or the coloring. Maybe, maybe a combination of both, honestly. Um, what I really love about Kieran Dwyer is that he is his own artist with his own distinct style, but you can definitely see John Byrne's influence in his art. He's not just another John Byrne clone. His art style is completely dissimilar but looking at the way he lays out a panel and, and just his particular art style, I can easily imagine that there were times with, you know, with these two sitting around an art table somewhere with John Byrne giving his stepson, you know, some pointers and, you know, layout advice and that sort of thing. I, I can really see that in the art. Um now the Torch of Liberty himself, you know, so far as I can remember, he kind of spins out of uh, of John Burns. Uh, it was a very short lived series that he did called Danger Unlimited. I think it only ran like four issues. I barely remember that book, but I remember digging the hell out of it when it was coming out, and I remember being really pissed that it just it suddenly just ended. It, it, there were, like I said, it was only I, I'm pretty sure it was a four issue thing. And from what I heard at the time, was that the uh, the pre pre order numbers on the first issue just weren't enough for Byrne's liking. You know, they were they were low numbers or lower than what he anticipated. So he just pulled the plug. You know, the four issues were already done; they were in the can, so they got released, and then he just abandoned the book at that point. And that was kind of the start of my um, like disenchanted period with John Byrne and, and his artwork. Because uh, for the longest time, that was really the last, you know, quote-unquote classic John Byrne that we got. And then from there, it just it was like a steady downhill spiral where there was just a lot of, like, subpar work that he did. But that title was good. It was right up there with his work on, like, FF and stuff, at least as far as the R. Again, I don't re- really remember much about what the stories were about. But I remember um, either the Torch was in those stories or he was in a backup. Come to think of it, I think it might have been a backup. But anyway, that's where he came from. So you know, I like this character a lot in concept, and and I was kind of wrong to call him like a, a pseudo Captain America because he's not really so much a Captain America analog as that he's a uh, he's really more of like a grown up Bucky. So you know, I don't remember Radio Girl at all from like the earlier adventures. So that this might actually be her first appearance, and I thought that those other stories took place earlier so this to me it really feels like this would be more like a post-world war ii like grown-up bucky operating in the 50s with a with a girl sidekick kind of like his own girl bucky is kind of what it feels like and i i like that feel i, I wish there were just more to it um and about the only other thing that uh that I know about uh, the Torch of Liberty beyond this was that uh, I guess Byrne actually allowed Mike Mignola at one point to play with the character, and uh, it was the Torch of Liberty that actually taught Hellboy how to shoot, or at least that's, oh, that's a cool. story that I read somewhere—I don't know, Wikipedia or something. Um, I haven't actually read that story though. I'm not much of a Hellboy fan, and uh, I really don't care for uh, for Mike Mignola. Um. But that's pretty much all I got on this. Um, and I just want to put out a quick plea to the listeners. If anybody knows what the hell Kieran Dwyer is up to these days, please write into the show and let us know because uh, this guy's way too good not to be working on something somewhere these days. Uh, I, I just I haven't heard anything about him from him in quite a long time now. But, uh, but that's about all I got. Oh, there is, uh, by the way, there's a fantastic, fully painted fake ad on the back cover it's for spunk soda but it's drawn like a classic coca-cola ad and it's uh the torch and radio girl sharing a uh, a spunk soda and it looks like a classic like coca-cola bottle and everything it's just a great ad it kind of looks like it might be burned but uh but it's not signed or anything but uh, it's really I you know, love the uh, the painted artwork here are you guys familiar with this uh with this character at all not in the slightest bit. <laughs> uh, I,
0: I had never heard of him before you, told, you said you were going to do this issue. So, you know, I, I try to do some due diligence just so that I have something to bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this one was tough because I'm not even familiar with Kieran Dwyer before this. But I did look him up. In fact, I just sent you a link to a page oh, yeah. of his artwork. Uh, and if you if you look at the page I sent you, second row down... All the way at the right, there's a Captain America yeah. that I think stands out as being particularly John Byrne-like Yes, uh, in its artwork. But then if you go in the row below that, directly below that, in fact, it's a, a page out of a Daredevil story, and I really, really like it. It looks to me kind of like if you took Jean, uh, John Byrne and Gene Coleman and threw them together. Yeah. This is the way the artwork would look, and boy, is it nice.
2: Are these, this is all his stuff here? Yeah, I think so. Wow. Because I didn't know, this one, it shows a panel from Batman 452, and I didn't know that he ever worked with, uh, with. yeah, sure enough. Yeah, it is him. That's funny, because he's totally pulling a Norm Brayfogle. I would have sworn that this was Norm Brayfogel until I blew it up larger. And, yeah, it says he's the penciler and uh, Janice was the, uh was the inker. So, wow. Or if you want to see something cool, go fourth pro middle uh, cover for
0: classic X Men, where he's basically recreating in a different way a John Byrne X Men cover.
1: Yeah, with the uh, oh, yeah, Alpha with Flight. Alpha Flight. Yeah, I mean he's,
2: he's a he's a, a hell of a versatile artist.
0: But but I, I see where where you say he's influenced by Byrne, but he isn't a Byrne clone, right? And, and that's you know that's ideally what you want is you want to. You know, pick some things from a great artist, but don't just copy him because you're not going to do it the same way he does it, uh, you know, and, and develop your own style on top of that. And that that looks like what he's done. And, you know, now I, I got to look for some stuff by, by this guy because some of his artwork is really pretty.
1: It says on his wiki he's done work... Um well, he did some Avengers Volume Three from 2001 and 2003, mm-hmm. and Action Comics uh, from 1995, 1996. So that's in uh, that's in Mike's Mike's playground. Yeah, uh, from Crisis to Crisis.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I remember that that run on uh, Avengers. I think if I'm not mistaken, I think that's right around that storyline that involved uh, Ms. Marvel or whatever the hell she was calling herself at the time, where that. Like creepy boyfriend guy of hers came back or something. It had something to do with the UN or uh, pfft, I'm struggling well, that to remember would, what the that story. Would go,
1: was. It's if you go down a couple rows on that art page that Paul put on there, there's you could see Captain America at the UN with the Black Panther and can't tell who that is next to him.
0: Oh, you're right. Are you talking about the very creepy story where Ms. Marvel gives birth to her? Yes. They, to to the son who actually turns out to be the person who impregnated her in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, her what was that? Kind of storyline, it was Avengers number 200. 200. Uh, yeah. and the character was named Marcus and I think what you're talking about is if you're on the left-hand side of this page down underneath three the red rows skull. from the bottom, there's a there's a shot of Captain America punching somebody out who appears to be that Marcus character.
2: Yeah, because he came back and he was actually disguised as Red...
1: Uh, as uh, Kang?
2: Yeah, see, here he looks like Kang, but I thought this was the one where he came back. I think I'm confusing storylines. But yeah, I think you're right. I think this might be the Marcus guy.
1: Yeah, he's disguised as Kang. When you blow it up, you can see it's Kang.
2: Yeah.
0: that's Well, he God, also had a Time beautiful. Traveler Immortus Connection. So, I could see where they'd go with that. But, yeah, yeah I mean, th- this guy, I, I can't believe I haven't seen more from him already because uh, I should be familiar with somebody whose art is this, this nice to look at.
2: Yeah, he's phenomenal. He really is.
0: I, I You know, you just gave me a new favorite.
2: I haven't <laughs> even read an issue by the guy, but I'm on board. I would uh, i would say, you know, I, I'm positive danger unlimited you know on the extreme cheap you know i don't think any of those issues maintained any sort of value or whatever i'm 50 cent or even maybe a quarter bin you know on ebay for you know a dollar or something but uh you know if you ever get time you know check them out because the 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 more i think about it the more i think that uh torture liberty was actually a backup in those, as, as opposed to being a character, the actual Danger Unlimited team, because they were modern heroes at the time, and I think that was in the 90s. Whereas he's a, you know, clearly a period character, so I, I'm pretty sure he wasn't actually a part of their stories. And uh, I think all of that stuff was the same as this. I think it was Byrne wrote it and, and Dwyer drew it, if I remember properly. So, uh, like I say, not the most... Uh, Meaty of reads, and uh, and I really wish that there was a, a lot more character development here. But uh, you know, the character definitely had potential. But I mean, if nothing else, it's you know, it's a lot of pretty pictures. But that's about all I got on this. What about you, Bill? Were you were you familiar with this stuff at all?
1: I've seen the Torture of Liberty. Uh, I think I had come across it reading some Hellboy. Um, um, I do have. Uh, I do have an issue or two of Danger Unlimited somewhere buried in my books. Uh, hopefully, here soon I'll be able to start sorting them out again, and maybe I'll find it. Uh, but no, I, I had not a- actually read read anything with the character uh, other than that one mention in Hellboy, and I didn't realize that I probably I've 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 seen seen Mr. Dwyer's work, but didn't realize who he was.
0: Yeah, I'm sure I have some of these issues that I'm looking at here, so I'm definitely going to have to take second looks at a lot of this stuff.
2: He draws a huge Captain America. I mean, his, his cap is just massive. I love it. It's really nice. I mean, this looks like a cap that could, like, punch through walls and stuff. He's pretty awesome. But yeah, I probably running a little bit long for this one, so I'll go ahead and wrap us up here. Any uh, closing thoughts, gentlemen?
0: Just uh, if people can send in those suggestions for episode one hundred.
2: Absolutely. All and, right.
0: And last yep. closing thought is: thanks a lot, Bill, for joining us.
1: Oh no, my pleasure, my pleasure. It was it, it was great. Uh, maybe uh, if I come back again, I'll be a little bit more prepared next time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll give I'll, you more uh, than fifteen minutes notice next time. <laughs> I'll give
0: yeah. you a head. I'll give you a heads up. I think I'm either two or three weeks away from uh, my family vacation, and I will be away on the night we usually record. So, if Mike and Scott don't mind me volunteering you to take my spot for that night, then uh, there will be an, uh, there will be a vacant seat.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We can we, we can work that out. We can do that. Excellent. Sounds good. All right.
2: Next time. NFL NFL Super Super Pro. Pro. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at com